1: The FT.
2: The Queen's speech has laid the foundations for yet more right to buy. We assess how the latest extension of Margaret Thatcher's flagship policy could transform the UK housing market. Plus, as banks enter the digital era, could their future competition come from within Silicon Valley? And following the Hatton Garden heist, should you use a safety deposit box to store your valuables? Welcome to the FT Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Claire Barrett and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford and Barney Thompson, plus a special studio guest, Henry Pryor, the buying agent and independent property commentator. Now, unless you owned a shop selling legal highs, there were no big surprises in the Queen's speech this week, the first under a solely Conservative government for nearly 20 years. But one of the more controversial measures was the Housing Bill. Since the right to buy was granted to council tenants in 1980, over two and a half million people have bought their homes at a discount, a right that will now be extended to approximately 1.3 million households who are renting from housing associations, and they could be entitled to up to £104,000 off the market value if they buy their home. At a time when even the RICS is describing the UK's housing crisis as a national emergency, there are fears that extending this policy could further reduce the numbers of affordable homes. Henry, there was tremendous opposition to this policy. Were you for or against and why?
3: Well, indeed, there was considerable opposition. It was jolly difficult. It remains very, very difficult to find somebody who is not a paid up member of the Conservative Party who thinks that uh, one more demand side assistance will actually make a tangible difference difference to trying to solve the housing crisis. We saw from all the main political parties uh, at the May the 7th general election, solutions put forward which almost entirely revolved around trying to help people to afford the already sky-high house and rent prices. Uh, It's difficult for anybody Rationally and dispassionately to see how in practice this extension of right to buy is going to provide more housing, which is what almost everybody in the industry thinks is the problem and that needs to be resolved.
2: Well, let's look at the finances of the housing bill and whether they add up. The government's promised to fund these discounts by getting local authorities to sell off their most valuable council houses when they become vacant. And they estimate that this could raise £4.5 billion over time. The only problem is they don't know when those homes are going to become Come vacant and eventually this will give them the money to build those replacement homes and fund the right to buy. Does it stack up?
3: Well, again, I, I mean, I sh- perhaps should have paid more attention at school to maths, but from my limited knowledge of arithmetic, I've struggled to make the sums add up. They're talking, as you rightly say, about uh, receipts from the sale of more expensive council-owned property. But the big problem is that once you drill down into the numbers, if you look at what is actually being proposed, it appears to be, particularly if you take into account the fact that we've, we're trying to get uh, these properties bought by people who are already financially challenged, Are they going to be able to qualify for a mortgage in the first place? If so, what can they afford? This may well stand out as a laudable one-nation type idea, but the practicalities of this revolve essentially around their one-to-one replacement that the uh, uh, Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government and the Housing Minister, Brandon Lewis, are trumpeting. That's the bit that I think the biggest question mark stands out, and... History, I'm afraid, is not on the side of the government.
2: No, and certainly there's been some interesting statistics tweeted this week about how many um, homes were built to replace the rights by stock that was sold off under um, Thatcher's government in the 80s. James, what have you been hearing this week following the Queen's speech?
4: Well, the complaints from the industry about the plan to extend the rights about to housing associations is that really that... As Henry said, it doesn't address the supply issue. The government is tampering with what most people think is a pretty well-run sector that is already responsible for a large amount of house building. Just in London alone, the top 15 housing associations are responsible for a quarter of the new houses that are built every year, 10,000 homes. And this will essentially denude their asset base and and make it harder for them therefore to get investment and harder for them to be flexible about where they put
2: people so the very policy designed to um Create more affordable homes is actually, in essence, um, destroying the prospects of the housing associations by wrecking their financial model.
4: That's right. So, so instead of expanding uh, the number, of the total number of homes that uh, that they that they are currently doing under the current situation, they, they describe it as um, it's like trying to fill a bathtub uh, with the plug taken out.
2: Interesting. Well, there was also a separate um, piece of legislation that came out in the Queen's Speech today, um, which may get some buy-to-let landlords um, worrying, not in the housing bill, but actually in the immigration bill, um, you were saying to me earlier, James.
4: Yes, so landlords um, are now going to be asked to check on uh, their tenants and make sure that uh, there are no illegal immigrants among them. And so it's it's an interesting move that um, essentially extends... Uh, I suppose, a, a form of policing um, uh, responsibility to landlords.
2: I mean, how's that going to work in practice, <laughs> well, Henry? Well, I mean, <laughs> Lock, it a, it's, a, it's a very
3: serious <laughs> point because um, what uh, the prime minister in his speech last week uh, has effectively laid out uh, is the framework for licensing for all private landlords, for them and for their agents. Now, letting agents historically have always been something of a maverick in the industry. They're not covered by the 1979 Estate Agents Act. And regulation therefore of letting agents has always been rather too relaxed, some people have felt. But this yeah, is included. Inc- This is an incredibly... Um, heavy handed way of dealing on the on the pretext of sorting out or part of the sorting out part of the immigration issue requiring landlords uh, to register centrally uh, is something that's going to put the wind up an awful lot of private landlords and indeed the lettings industry as a whole.
2: Well, over the last 35 years Right to Buy, certainly within London has been a phenomenal investment not just for the original buyers but subsequent owners, many of which are buy-to-let landlords or property developers who've been doing up the flats. Now, last week the Evening Standard reported that London's first million pound ex-council flat had gone on the market in Knightsbridge. Um, A modest looking two-bed from the outside, the interior pictures tell um, a rather different story. What's your view on that? Well, this is
3: 700 square foot of Prime, Knightsbridge, um, Maskell's Knightsbridge Estate Agents, Mascals are selling this uh, um, two bedroom flat it's above uh, a Stella McCartney shop at Brompton Cross. Yeah, not just uh, any council flat. It, <laughs> ha- it has some redeeming features it has to be said but that being said it is a frightening example of what can happen and inevitably an awful lot of people are going to point to this and the example uh, that it sets. The difficulty and the frustrations that not just housing associations are going to find but I suspect and the one thing that that frightens me more Is that just at a time when actually institutional investors have been thinking and considering the merits of getting into providing social housing of some description, they're going to be, I'm sure, frightened, put off, desperately um, concerned about the government stepping in and meddling, as, uh, as they would see it perhaps, in an otherwise open market.
2: Well, thank you very much, Henry and James. Still to come on the show, we'll be looking at the mysterious world of safety deposit boxes following the audacious Hatton Garden raid, and who actually uses them and who is still providing them. Before that, this week, we dispatched James Pickford to the digital front line of banking as he explored how technology is transforming our relationship with our banks. So, James, why are the banks throwing money at the digital initiative? Are they competing amongst themselves or are there wider forces at work?
4: Well, they're certainly competing amongst themselves. Um, the, the, the growth in the use of uh, the internet and the use of mobile smartphones and tablets to, uh, to do banking services, financial services, has been uh, a spectacular. And now you know, three out of four um, British adults now use smartphones and banks are putting through nearly a billion pounds of transactions on the internet and mobile um, uh, every day. So uh, this has been a a huge rise, and banks have to address it. But, of course, it's not just themselves they're competing with or other banks. Uh, They're competing with a whole series of new entrants where uh, you have um, the Apples, the Googles, uh, the Amazons and Paypals and so forth who, um, while they don't want to transform themselves into banks, are nonetheless uh, taking a bite out of banking services, the activities that banks would normally do in terms of processing payments and so on. In addition, you've got um, a, a new type of lender on the scene in terms of crowd funders and peer-to-peer lenders who are doing uh, the sorts of lending that banks would have done uh, in the past.
2: Well, maybe they can do to our banks what Uber has done to the black cab industry. But in terms of how we will experience banking as consumers, from the research you've been doing this week, do you think that we'll still have bank cards in five years' time?
4: Well, these, this is, this is a, a, an area which is under um, a huge sort of transformation at the moment. Moment as. Um, the technology is in place to get rid of bank cards essentially and move all of those things onto smartphones so um, at the moment if you if you say use um, the tube in london you might place your contactless card onto um, the 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 oyster machine Um, in future you could just do that with your phone Uh, you could go into a shop and place it against a terminal and it would do exactly what your plastic card does
2: Yeah, i mean certainly in, in my own life i have contactless payment and pay for everything from my bus fare to my to my lunchtime sandwich um, yes. using my contactless card it 's quite a dangerous way for your spending yes. to run out of control because you don 't always get a receipt
4: but, but- in addition to that you, you, you know the, the cards themselves will become customizable so you, you not a, at the moment you, obviously you can have a limit an upper limit on the amount you can spend on a card, but in future uh, your card whether it 's you know a real a physical card or, a, or something that exists on your smartphone could have all sorts of uh, constraints added to it. So one example I was given was a a parent that gives their 14-year-old son a a card which doesn't allow it to be used after a certain hour of the night and it can't be used (laughs) on gambling websites and and adult sites and so forth. So Could only uh, be used
2: to buy ginger beer. (laughs) Well, I mean, what about bank branches? I mean, are we still going to be going into a branch in five years' time? Will there be any left by then? Will we still need them?
4: Well, as we know, uh, b- branches have changed um, you know, almost out of recognition in the last 10 years. Um, and a lot of them have closed um, a quarter over the last uh, 20 years so um, they they will still be under pressure but one of the things that uh, that has come out uh, from from technology is that actually there may be a lifeline for banks in video services uh, one of the ways in which branches may help because um, if you can if you can't afford to send a mortgage consultant out to you know every, every week to a remote branch um, in the middle of nowhere you, you can afford, perhaps, to have a video screen with a high-definition link and you can keep that branch going, you can keep your mortgage service going um, by having, often in, in many cases, more convenient appointments um, for the people who are, who are living out there. They can make the, the appointments when they want and they can see the mortgage consultant much more quickly.
2: No doubt you would be able to book the appointment online. I mean, it all sounds great, but on the downside, does it also create new opportunities for fraudsters?
4: well and um, the banks say that actually one of the key things is that as the technology develops so does biometric technology and that is the key if you're going to extend all these services into mobiles and uh, the computers and so forth, you need very, very good security, multi-layered security. And at, what they're working on at the moment is obviously we already have fingerprint technology and they're already, they're, there's, there's finger vein technology, which is apparently better than fingerprint technology. Blimey. Um, you have uh, voice prints, so each person has a unique identifier in the voice. And even the, the, the pace with which you swipe your mobile uh, phone the the rhythm and the, and the routine by by which you you tap on the phone is something that is 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 another uh, marker for your identity so they can link that device with you and that's the most important thing but what what we have seen and the figures out on this today in fact um, uh, from the industry body is that there's been a huge rise in um, in, in identity fraud so this is people uh, fraudsters making up fictitious identities getting into the system um, putting down an electronic trail uh, so they can get access to savings accounts, to retail cards, to eventually current accounts. And then after 12 to 18 months, they what's called blow out. In other words, they max out all the credit lines and can make anything up to about £25,000.
2: Gosh, well, good reason to be protected. There's more information on all of the lines um, in that item in this week's edition of FT Money. Thanks to James Pickford, who is our deputy editor. But before we go into our final item, a reminder that you can read FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday, priced at £3, or you can read online, subject to registration at ft.com slash money, and you can subscribe via tablet devices for just £99 a year. The story of the Diamond Weezers, who audaciously drilled into a Hatton Garden safety deposit vault, stealing the contents of hundreds of boxes over the last May bank holiday, has captured the public attention. I'm joined in the studio by Barney Thompson, UK news reporter, who's been following this story. Barney, welcome to the show. The story's been all over the news for weeks now, but aside from diamond dealers, who actually uses safety deposit boxes and what do they put in them?
1: Well, I suppose the, the trite but true answer to that is that anybody who regularly handles extremely expensive physical assets, so that obviously there are the the jewelers and gold dealers of, of Hatton Garden and streets leading off it. But there are other key market segments. British Asians uh, are identified as one in particular because they tend to give uh, gifts of gold uh, and jewellery on uh, for weddings and significant mm. birthdays and anniversaries and that kind of thing. Um, so the State Bank of India has been offering a safe deposit box uh, service for some decades now. Um, then there are just very rich people in general um, uh, which is why places like Harrods and Selfridges still have after, and they've been running these for for decades now, I think the Selfridges safe deposit vault has been in operation for 80 or 90 years um, and then there are a variety of other people who may have several reasons, uh, lawyers who want to keep sensitive documents uh, people like uh, you or I who may just have something that we we don't want to go up in smoke if something dreadful happens to our houses.
2: Or in the- case of uh, the character in the goldfinch novel um, a valuable painting that they want to hide from from the eyes of the law I mean who who else is is, is providing these services I mean t- typically didn't the banks used to to offer this
1: the banks used to but the main UK banks decided to get out of the business in uh, around about 2012 2013 uh, they all suddenly decided at once to do so and I I suppose that was because they decided it was not really a profitable enterprise anymore it's not really core business it takes personnel to be on hand all of the times if you come in and you want to view what you've got in your safe deposit box, somebody has to go in there with you. So it wasn't seen as a very efficient thing to do. But there are still people who do it, State Bank of India was one Metro Bank, the Challenger Bank, that's another one that says it has 27,000 people who use safe deposit boxes and uh, that's growing there seems to be still a demand for I'm that. They're growing,
2: growing so much I hear they've put up their, their prices recently. Indeed,
1: I think they spotted uh, an obvious, a narrowing of the market rather that they could capitalise on after the, the other banks exited, so they've put up their prices and they're doing, they say it's a core part of their business, in fact they advertise it and, and say this is absolutely what we do and clients love it so they they provide that service there are uh, various independent companies uh, that provide the service and they are also seem to be doing quite well and then there are places in hatton garden like the location that got targeted by the thieves and just to add a little bit of mystery to that, I brought in a quote from um, a book called Diamond Street, The oh. Hidden World of Hatton Gardens by Rachel Liechtenstein, whose uh, family who worked up and down that street for, for many, many years. Uh, and she speaks of a network of hidden spaces, heavily guarded underground vaults filled with wholesale stores of gold and silver. Which is the the kind of thing that really whets the appetite for the thriller writers
2: well indeed, and I mean in the aftermath of the, of the heist, how has it impacted on the market? Has it affected demand for for these units or even the cost of insurance
1: well, the insurance uh, the insurance angle is quite interesting. Some of the establishments that offer safe deposit facilities do offer insurance or at least a limited amount of insurance, but for the most part. It's either up to you to ensure what you stick in a safe deposit box or you may not bother. You may have decided that since it's already in a box with a code... In a vault, uh, guarded by several people, you may not need insurance. Of course, when something happens like the Hatton Garden heist, that all goes out the window and insurance companies report a sudden rush of people who think, oh, yes, gosh, we'd better insure this. It doesn't really affect the cost of insurance very much because when all said and done for the thousands and thousands of safe deposit boxes that are out there, the number of heists uh, that target those kind of places are, are pretty rare But they do tend to create a bit of a fuss because uh, the, the tabloids love them. They create huge headlines.
2: Well, not just the tabloids, evidently. Thank you very much to Barney Thompson, the FT's UK news reporter. Now, we'd love to know what you think about the Queen's speech, the digital banking revolution, or about money matters more generally. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is money at ft.com, or you can tweet us at ftmoney. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com money. There's just time to tell you what else is in this week's edition. Following record fines for the boss of failed death bonds firm Keydata, we look into further investor disputes at other firms. Sticking with that theme, I visited a death cafe and lived to tell the tale in my serious money column this week. And as usual, we've shared tips from our sister publication, The Investor's Chronicle, and the latest Director's Deals. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, James Barney, and our special studio guest, Henry Pryor.
1: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts
0: join capital group ceo mike gitlin for a new edition of the capital ideas podcast In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
4: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?